Pantsil, Jerko Leko, Kaka. Sorry, um, sorry about that. I was just sort of listing certain World Cup footballers' names um, instead of getting on with the show. This is Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key. My name is Frank Key. And um, this is a story called Fiends of the Farmyard. And I wrote this this morning. There is or may have been an old superstition that every farmyard has its own fiend. It is said that Beelzebub personally allotted each fiend to its farmyard and ratcheted up the fiendishness of his dastardly plan by making the fiends extremely hard to identify. So, for example, neighbouring farmyards may have very, very different resident fiends. A pig here, an old rusty iron pail there, a one-legged hen in one farmyard and a big bright red tractor belching smoke in another. Exorcising a farmyard of its fiend is thus fraught with difficulty. For the average countryside exorcist, stepping through the gate of a farmyard for the first time, does not know where to begin to look. There is great disparity in the fiendishness of farmyard fiends, and some diabolists have argued that Beelzebub treated the whole matter with an uncharacteristic lack of diabolic concentration. For every farmyard that is stricken by an energetic fiend, there are many more that can pass for years, even decades, in untroubled bucolic peace. But of course, it is the former that gain attention. Who can forget the ruination visited upon Scroonhoon Pooge farmyard in the 1930s? All those crop failures, diseases, fires, murders, contaminations and inexplicable barn collapses which ceased only when a marauding nighttime squirrel was captured in a net by Father Dermot Boggis and subjected to the full rigour of his holy wrath. It took six months for the exorcist to expel every last vestige of fiendishness from the squirrel, leaving the poor bushy-tailed mammal thin and exhausted and close to death. And yet, as it was slowly revived by the coddling of old Ma Purgative at her verdant squirrel sanctuary, so too did the farmyard flourish anew with majestic fields of golden wheat gleaming new buckets replacing the old rusty pails and happy, happy pigs. <clears throat> There's a cough. You would be forgiven for thinking that the taxonomy of farmyard fiends is precisely the kind of subject to which Dobson would have devoted a pamphlet or two. Indeed, Marigold Chu often pressed him to tackle the topic, supplying the out-of-print pamphleteer with a constant stream of newspaper cuttings about hideous devastations of an agricultural kidney. She was a subscriber to the once popular monthly magazine Glimpses of Farmyard Ruin and wrote many letters to the editor, some of which were published and one of which, October 1954, was selected as Letter of the Week, or month, for which Marigold received a prize. Unfortunately, the prize was a very large hog with a brain disease which went rampaging about the house. Mischievously, the editor of the magazine, who had his own farmyard, regularly used the monthly prize to rid himself of his farmyard fiends.
Ah, yes. Note the plural. What happens, you will ask, when a fiend of the farmyard is identified and destroyed, whether by slaughter, exorcism, or, big, or being given away as a prize in a raffle, tombola, or by some other means, as happened with Marigold's chew? Did Scroon Hoon Pooge farmyard stay fiend-free once its sinister squirrel had its demons cast out? How attentive was Beelzebub to the welfare of those he had sent to wreak havoc in our bosky rural domains? Were new fiends recruited and trained to carry out various infernal farmyard acts of fiendishness? These and other questions were answered by Father Dermot Boggis himself in his deathbed ravings, carefully transcribed by his wrinkled old helpmeet, the Widow Popsicle. Among the thousands of pages she scribbled, we find this startling passage of disconnected rantings. Gah! Gah! Inexplicable torment of the devil's long poking fork. His ladle. Cataclysm of shuddering abasement in the pit. When did you last see your potatoes? Gah! Have the fields been hoed? I see hundreds of cows. Thousands of cows, millions of cows, brutes, the flames of the fiery furnace, a crow on the branch of a dead tree, blasts of lightning, no diesel for the tractor, blight, blight, worms eating the flesh of resurrected horses, never resurrect a horse, never, pass me that feeble lamp, puddles of sludge and slop and constant rainfall, Forty days and forty nights, flooded fields, the wheat ruined, ergot poisoning, a gruesome figure in the shroud of death. Find me a lonely cave, remote from humankind, dark as the midnight grave, and dismal as my mind. Gah! And with that last brief flash of lucidity, the remembered words of John Eccles, circa 1688 to 1735, Father Dermot Boggis relapsed into insanity, 400 pages worth of the widow Popsicle's palsied pencil scrawl. The clue to the farmyard fiend's damnable resilience is, I think, in that reference to the crow perched on the branch of a dead tree. Dawn is near. The sun will soon be lighting your path to the far-flung fields. Go and till and plough and harrow, feed your horses and your cows and your happy, happy pigs. You may spit upon your farmyard, fiend. It will pester you no more. It was only ever a superstition, or it might have been. Ansel and Jerko Leko and Kaka, players to watch. This is called The Big Metal Fence. Freakishly tall, draped in a soutane, my brain pounding, I found myself standing before a trench full of sludge. In each hand, I discovered that I was holding a bucket of pungent goo. My feet were encased in sturdy plastic booties and at least two pairs of socks. 
I squelched across the trench, each step expelling from the sludge noisome fumes which wafted in the air behind me, shimmering and stinking. After some minutes, I clambered onto the other side and rested the buckets upon the ground. Sulphurous fires ablaze within my skull, I had made the crossing from life into death. Eternity was before me. That was six weeks ago, and I have now prepared this preliminary report of my impressions. I don't doubt that as further aeons pass, what follows may appear naive, churlish and inaccurate. I'll file a more detailed report in 10 billion years or so, and it will be instructive for scholars to compare the two documents. I repeat, these are very much first impressions. In marshalling my material, I've plunged the majority of my notes into the chute of rack and ruin which is on the mezzanine floor of the larger of the two damp buildings. First, because to include everything would make this report too long and unwieldy. Second, because I've come to enjoy the whirring and clanking noises emitted by the chute when it's put into operation. It is my fondest hope that, however limited and fragmentary the material, my listeners will nonetheless gain a useful insight into what awaits them after death. So far I've discovered four pubs. The Butcher's Vest, the Consumptive Stalinist, the Tenth Chaffinch and the Smouldering Pit. To get into the latter, you must be in possession of a special ticket issued by the River Police, whose headquarters is in a small hut at the bottom of a flight of stone steps a few hundred yards north of the Moribund Dam. To get into the hut, however, you need a licence from the Buffed-Up Shield Committee, which meets only once every 4,000 years. It's typical of my luck that they met just two days before I arrived here. From what I've heard, the smouldering pit has the very best drinks in the afterlife, and what's more, they're free. My friend Ringchok, who's been here for untold centuries, recommends a particular brew they serve called the Hoist. It is effervescent, curdled, of a startling lavender tinge, and after four pints you get to join Captain Snap's committee, of which more later. I have been able to get into the other three pubs mentioned, none of which has any restrictions on entry. The butcher's vest is the only one worthy of repeated visits. Its landlord, a bat-eared titan whose name is unpronounceable, comes from the same village as me, although he lived there many centuries before I was born. We've had many little chats, although his speech is hard for me to follow, as he is toothless and slobbers uncontrollably. The range of drinks is somewhat limited, but the landlord provides enticing snacks for his regular customers. Each of the tables has a bowl of boiling hot custard on it, into which one can dip a staggering selection of biscuits, crackers, buns, tarts and pastries. Often these are stale, but when moistened with sufficient custard, they're quite palatable. The tables are rickety though, so one must be careful to avoid spillages, which enrage the landlord to the point where his hair stands on end, his face turns purple, and he gets his cronies to hurl the offender into an open sewer which runs past the back door. You may find it hard to believe, but absolutely everyone here is dressed from head to foot in corduroy. When I made the crossing, you will recall that I was wearing a soutane. I have no idea why. At reception, however, I was ushered into a little cubicle and given a set of corduroy apparel to change into. 
hat, shirt, jerkin, underpants, pantaloons, socks and moccasins. The soutane was taken away and I've not seen it since. Later, when I was taken to my quarters, I discovered a wardrobe full of corduroy clothing. Ah yes, my quarters. What is accommodation like on the other side of the grave? Well, pokey. The population is, of course, ever increasing, so overcrowding is a seemingly insoluble problem. Contrary to popular belief, as far as I can remember, we do not have unlimited space. Those who've been here for an unimaginably long time can only dimly remember when they had a small room all to themselves. I share my cabin with seven others. Binns was a whaling captain. Al Akbuz ran a luxury hotel. Rosemary and Lettuce, who perished together in one of the earliest railway accidents, were distressed gentlewomen. They still are, come to that. Scrut was some sort of hill peasant. Nug, our longest-serving resident, appears to have been a caveman as far as any of us can tell. He smells astonishingly, astonishingly unpleasant. Min Tok Thing babbles endlessly about her glorious life in an imperial palace of the ancient Orient and treats the rest of us with contempt. Thrown together with dead people whose lives were so different, it might be thought that the afterlife is one long round of fascinating conversations, broadened horizons and limitless opportunity to compare ideas, ideas feelings, throbs, pangs, perceptions and beliefs. Would that it were so. Unfortunately, language acquisition, and indeed any kind of mental development, simply doesn't happen here. So, Nug is locked in his strange and distant world, goes out of his mind with confusion when he sees, for example, a wheel, and spends most of the time grunting, hammering his fists on the floor, and making his toilet where the fancy takes him. Binns told me an uproarious story about how he once took Nug with him to the butcher's vest and forced eight pints of grut down the poor wretch's throat. In the resulting mayhem, Nug smashed the pub to smithereens before passing out quite happily in the sewer where he spent the next year or so recovering. The fact that we all wear virtually identical corduroy clothing also makes things difficult. You simply can't tell whether the person lounging by the bus stop is a 13th century Mongolian warlord, a Victorian entomologist, the murdered heir to the throne of Finland, a milkman from Wivenhoe, a druid, a CIA assassin, a Baltic potato farmer, one of Hannibal's mahouts, Ethelred the Unready, or an ex-pope. The chances are that any attempt you make at light conversation will be doomed from the start through mutual unintelligibility. So after a while, you don't even bother to try. I've only been here for six weeks, and I'm already affected by this social lethargy. Our cramped living conditions are intolerable, and it's not surprising that fights and squabbles are common. I tried to spend most of my time out and about, going back home only to sleep. In my first week, I made inquiries about changing cabins, but to do so is apparently impossible. They have a massive ledger at reception, and they pencil in your name against whatever accommodation is available, and that's it. Forever and ever and ever and ever. I have been given a job at the dairy. 
We have thousands of cows, an efficient bottling plant, good refrigeration facilities and a delivery system that runs like clockwork. Buttermilk is increasingly popular and we also produce sour cream, cheeses, yoghurt and a very nice and very nice little cartons of whey. Of course, fresh milk forms the bulk of our production and although we no longer do home deliveries, we make sure that the milk kiosks are always fully stocked. After a, sing after a month in the single cream department, I was promoted. I am now captain of the churns and I wear a special badge. The spiritu spiritualists among you will be pleased to note that this place is fairly riddled with ectoplasm. Viscous, refulgent and shimmering, it hovers above the rooftops, curls in wisps in every room, darts hither and thither in the air wherever one cares to look. What purpose it serves is a mystery. There are scholars here, of course, and many of them are using eternity to puzzle over this enigmatic substance. Books roll off the presses in frightening quantities. On a visit to the library last week, I noted the following titles, all of them published since my arrival. The Ectoplasmic Gazanteer. The Luster of Ectoplasm. Ectoplasmus. Heaven's Porridge. Ectoplasmic Phantasms. And Ectoplasm's New Hub. Learned journals devoted to the subject are piled high in corridors and pavilions. Hot and hate-filled debates are broadcast on the radio as two or more experts dispute each other's theories, shouting their heads off and resorting to infantile bickering. True fanatics spend months at a time in the ectoplasm park near the railway sidings, where the gleaming substance has somehow been corralled and controlled, hanging low in the air above a large circle of verdant lawns. The visitor to the park is literally enveloped in ectoplasm, breathing it in through every pore. What the effects are of such exposure, I do not know, as I have yet to experience them. Needless to say, those who visit the park come away with wildly different stories to tell. The letters columns of the ectoplasm journals are full of first-hand reports, the writer's reactions varying from blinding ecstasy to stultifying boredom. I'll not bother to reproduce any of this verbiage here. You'll have time enough to read about it when you're dead. I have yet to meet Captain Snap, but stories about him are rife. Most of them seem to be about the various hijinks and scamperies he got up to when he was alive. Ask about his role in the afterlife, and there is an ominous, even terrified silence. No one seems to know which cabin he lives in if, indeed, he lives in a cabin at all. On a promontory by the mud wastes, there stands an enormous misshapen castle, like something out of a child's nightmare. Some attest that Captain Snap inhabits it, surrounded by minions, but this seems unlikely. Every month, there are charabank outings to the castle, and the tourists, chosen by raffle, are able to roam about all around it at will. Perhaps Captain Snap hides in a broom cupboard or makes himself scarce during these visits. Who knows? Most people are only able to drink half a pint of the hoist before passing out, so rigorous training is necessary if one aspires to join Captain Snap's committee. As with so much else here, the committee's role is a mystery. Opinions vary. 
there are those who accuse the committee of regulating every aspect of the afterlife. Others say it's merely a drinking club. Binns swears blind that the members are able to return to Earth for short periods as ghosts, but for, that for some reason they're only able to haunt desolate, winter-racked seaside resorts. I'm sure he's just making that up. As with ectoplasm, so with grace. There is a vast amount of it here. When I was alive, I remember that Christians used to bang on about grace all the time, but I must admit that I never worked out precisely what it was. From what I did gather, however, I can confidently say that as with many aspects of the afterlife, they were very wide of the mark. At reception, they give you a large tub of grace and tell you to look after it very carefully and not to open it until you get the word. Not that they're trusting. Being a curious sort, I tried to open my tub as soon as I got to my cabin and discovered that it had a safety catch on the lid, a nasty little mechanism which snapped over my fingers and clamped them tight against the tub so that I howled with agony. Bins, chuckling at my naivety, sent me off to the tub inspectors, who freed my fingers, dabbed them with ointment, reset the catch and gave me a ticking off. As for the word, upon receipt of which I can open my tub, to date I have not met a single person who has ever received it. Everyone has their pristine, unopened tub. Some people carry them around, though personally I find the pockets on our clothing are not roomy enough. You can buy little wicker baskets into which the tubs fit quite snugly, and you see those quite often. But like most people, I keep my tub of grace in a little wooden locker in my cabin. The postal system is charming. Rickshaws stacked with packets and parcels and pulled along by brightly uniformed Prussians career through the streets if streets is the correct word for the stinking muddy channels which crisscross our domain. For some reason, you have to be a Prussian who died during the 19th century in order to get a job as a postal worker. This seems to be rather unfair, and were I not so happy at the dairy, I would raise a stink about it. When I first learned about this exclusive employment practice, I assumed that the Prussians got the jobs because, with their stereotypical passion for order, they would run a tight ship and keep stern bureaucratic control of so potentially chaotic a system as the postal deliveries. I soon discovered how wrong my assumptions were. The great thing about the postal service here is that it is entirely random. You can write a letter, tie up a parcel, shove a few knick-knacks into a packet and deposit it in the post box, and you simply never know who the recipient will be. If, naively, you waste your time carefully addressing your mail to a particular individual, you're summoned to the post office HQ and made to do an hour's stamp-licking duty, while ferocious hounds bay at you from an adjoining room. There is a big metal fence completely surrounding this place. It is electrified. I have spent long hours peering through its criss-cross of lethal wires, trying to see what lies beyond it, but all I can make out is an indistinct beige and mauve blur. A distant, mesmerising clamour is just audible. Those who, through nefarious means, have attempted to cross it have found themselves instantly surrounded by gangs of brutish myrmidons whose golden helmets are burnished and gleaming. 
Merciless and inexplicable, they enwrap their captives in grey corduroy shrouds, intone a litany of awfulness and dread, and convey them at hideous speed to the mezzanine floor of the big damp building, whence they are dispatched, muffled, stricken and aghast, into the chute of rack and ruin. And as it whirs and clanks, they are forever swept away. They are swept away and gone. Every now and then um, on the show, as regular listeners will know, I like to read from um, quotations from the work of others. Normally, I tend to read things um, by less well-known writers. But I thought today I'd um, end the programme by treating you to an excerpt from Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management by Isabella Beaton, of course. Um, 1861, a classic book. And I've always enjoyed the, the um, section, A Few Rules to be Observed in Cooking for Invalids. Not sure we have time for the whole thing. Um, but, and I think, we'll, before reading the rules themselves, um, Mrs. Beaton has a wonderful recipe uh, in this section. Um, invalids Jelly. So if you know anyone who's not feeling too well, bit off colour, bit peaky with the heat, um, I think you should you would do better than to make them some invalid jelly. This will make this will perk anyone up. Ingredients: twelve shanks of mutton, three quarts of water, a bunch of sweet herbs, pepper and salt to taste, three blades of mace, one onion, one pound of lean beef and a crust of bread toasted brown. <clears throat> Soak the shanks in plenty of water for some hours and scrub them well. Put them with the beef and other ingredients into a saucepan with the water and let them simmer very gently for five hours. Strain the broth and when cold, take off all the fat it may be eaten either warmed up or cold as a jelly. Doesn't that sound mm, delicious? Anyway, here are some of Mrs. Beaton's rules to be observed in cooking for invalids. Let all the kitchen utensils used in the preparation of invalids' cookery be delicately and scrupulously clean. If this is not the case, a disagreeable flavour may be imparted to the preparation, which flavour may disgust and prevent the patient from partaking of the refreshment when brought to him or her. Always have something in readiness. A little beef tea, nicely made and nicely skimmed, a few spoonfuls of jelly, etc., that it may be administered as soon almost as the invalid wishes for it. If obliged to wait a long time, the patient loses the desire to eat and often turns against the food when brought to him or her. 
In sending dishes or preparations up to invalids, let everything look as tempting as possible. Have a clean tray cloth laid smoothly over the tray. Let the spoons, tumblers, cups and saucers, etc. be very clean and bright. Gruel served in a tumbler is more appetising than when served in a basin or a cup and saucer. Never leave food about a sick room. If the patient cannot eat it when brought to him, take it away and bring it to him in an hour or two's time. Miss Nightingale says, to leave the patient's untasted food by his side from meal to meal in hopes that he will eat it in the interval <coughs> is simply to prevent him from taking any food at all. She says, I have known patients literally incapacitated from taking one article of food after another by this piece of ignorance. Let the food come at the right time and be taken away, eaten or uneaten at the right time. But never let a patient have something always standing by him if you don't wish to disgust him of everything. Wise words, I think, and I hope you take them with you in the week ahead and think about them as you make your invalid jelly. Um, I'll be back next week. Um, thank you for listening. Bye bye. <laughs>